talk about uh, scripture today. So here's your warm-up question. Uh, this is for like you veterans, right? You guys who have been hanging around Jesus for a while, hanging around church, hanging around scripture. So softball question. Here's an easy one. What's the Bible for? What's the Bible for? To know God. That can't, that can't be a bad answer, right? That must be good. To know God. Yeah, what else? What pops into your head? Testimonies, testimonies about testimonies about people's experience with God. There, well, there was a correction, correction. Because uh, time to time to time we need it, uh, correction. And so uh, the Bible's filled with good little uh, guides. What else? For growth, if you want to grow. Uh, spiritually and relationship with God. It's a pretty good book. Yeah. What else? It's a catalyst. That's an interesting response, right? You know what a catalyst is? Uh, it's, catalyst is basically a, a chemical or a mechanism that makes other mechanisms happen. It's an engine, a releaser of things. That's an interesting way to think about it. One more brilliant answer. Who's got it? Clarity. 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 Uh, that's interesting as well because uh, um, we are all searching for answers and applications and the Bible can help uh, clear things up a little bit. All really, really good answers. Um, you guys are great uh, scripture veterans, uh, Bible veterans, and you should give yourself snaps. Let's go. Well done. Not in the Bible, by the way. Snaps. But... I think they're right on. I've loved the Bible uh, my whole life. Some of you know my story. I, like I didn't, I didn't like come up in a in a church-going family in a, in a Christian family, but I had some Christian babysitters when I was a kid. They kind of introduced me to Jesus when I was like, really, really young, and somebody gave me a children's Bible uh, somewhere along the way, and uh, so I just started reading the stories, you know, these great stories about Jesus that I thought was really cool, and there was a lot of. Uh, I don't know, stress and vulnerability in my childhood. Uh, my family had troubles with the law and troubles with finance and stuff like that. And so, I, you know, I spent a lot of my childhood just, I mean, kind of scared, to tell you the truth. I used to sleep with the Bible under my pillow for some reason. Nobody told me to do that. And I'm not advocating that as a proper way to study Scripture, by the way. It was very childish, you know. But, I mean, childish in kind of a good way. I was like, I this... What I get in this makes me feel a bit secure, is kind of what I was saying. Uh, and therefore, I wanted it close. I wanted it near me. It wasn't really thought out. It wasn't really rational. But I felt like, it, you know, it's, it's a good instinct. Um, and I've made a point ever since I was a little kid to, uh, to read it through, to study it. I think I'd read the Bible through twice by the time I was nine years old. Um, with absolutely no mentorship or instruction uh, in, uh, in it. But just to tell you how much I loved it, and I memorized a good number of the stories. I certainly had my favorite. I had my favorite books. Um, and they weren't what a normal nine-year-old would, would call favorite stories of books. I think I was not normal. So all to say, just an awesome book. And I think it gets underestimated. I think it gets misunderstood. Um, I think it gets narrowed inappropriately. You know, people don't understand what the Bible is. Like, people think it's a book about 
the, uh, a faith system or a religion or the development of a faith system. Or, no, the Bible is a record of humanity. And a lot of, there's a lot of great archaeological um, study now being done about the very, very, very old parts of the Bible and how shockingly accurate they are historically and archaeologically and scientifically even. It is a book like none other. How many of you think that the Bible is a pretty cool book? Just get the thumbs up. All right, all right. So you guys, you guys are in. But how many of you have had someone use Scripture on you in a way that made you feel really small or made it difficult for you to come to God or find God? Hands raised. Yeah, I asked this question in my Ohana group Wednesday night, and probably like 90% of people had a story about someone essentially terrorizing them uh, with Scripture. I'm using that word loosely. Um, but it can be used and uh, abused. Um, because it's a big, sprawling resource. And people can seize, seize on bits of it and use them in exclusion of other bits of it. You know, it's easy to come across as an expert in Scripture. I don't know if anybody really is. And... Um, as a result, to make non-experts feel small. Jesus used scripture a lot, um, but it's worth studying how he used it in scripture, how he applied it. Um, one of my favorite clarifying statements of all of scripture, about scripture, <laughs> was when uh, the religious experts of Jesus' day were uh, kind of pelting him uh, with accusations, like, you're not scriptural enough. You don't honor scripture enough. And his disciples, uh, who were like super hungry, uh, one Sabbath day were uh, picking grain kernels off a stock to eat, and the religious experts were criticizing him about that. And Jesus said to him, said to the, his critics, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which I think is probably the most clarifying statement about biblical law that there is in scripture. Basically, he was saying, the reason you have all of these rules is to help make you healthy and strong, right? Understand the spirit of those rules. And then, can we get a little less gain on this, I think? It's starting to ring up here. Um, the rules are there to make you healthy, not to make you a slave, you know? Uh, understand the spirit of the rules, and then you'll be able to apply them well. Uh, understand the spirit, and you apply the letter uh, the other uh, insight that was really helpful to me uh, as I was uh, coming up, as I was a youth, was to understand that, um, understand, to understand how to understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We hear this a lot, right? Well, the Old Testament God seemed really angry, really rule-based, really judgmental, really violent. And the New Testament God, as revealed by Jesus, seems anything but, right? Seems super grace-based. Um, super welcoming, super, super non-judgmental, all of those things. So, you know, I reject the Old Testament God. Uh, I accept the New Testament God, which means that the whole thing must be a lie because it's so inconsistent. And I've heard that a lot, that accusation um, from, from non-believers. Uh, but here's an insight. It's not God who changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's people, 
right? And this is an insight that's really stood me in good stead. The way that you treat your child when he or she is three or four years old is a lot different than how you treat your child when he or she is 17 or 18 years old. I've used this analogy a lot. When my little boy, uh, Jeremiah, uh, was two or three years old, you know, he had energy like normal little boys, and sometimes he would run out into the street. We lived on this corner house. Uh, now, that was really bad for him, right? Because he could get killed in this blind, this blind turn. So I would be violent with him, not in a damaging way, but, you know, it's like I would just grab him and say, you know, Daddy mad, <laughs> right? Because that's all a two-year-old can understand, right? He's not going to understand a well-reasoned, nuanced argument about traffic safety, is he? He's just going to be like, No! Whap! You know, you slap his little butt, and I want it to imprint on his amygdala, right? I want it to get in there, because that's how a two-year-old operates. And when you're dealing with two-year-olds, you have to be that guy, right? And then he grows up. And then, fairly recently, I not only let him go into the street, I give him car keys. And he's out there driving around where there are two-year-olds running into, into the street, right? So what has changed? Have I been inconsistent? No, no, but people grow, people change. And so the rules of traffic safety flex, right? The rule is be safe, be healthy. That's the rule. Now, the way that rule is applied is like, I will swat your butt if you go into the street or... Um, you know, 25 in a school zone, or 20 in a school zone, I guess it is. It shows you what I know. Um, but it's the same rule. It just sounds a lot different, right? Anyway, so different ways to understand Scripture. Why am I going on about that? It's because I just want to give some examples of relating to Scripture in a way that I think is healthy. We're in this sermon series called How to Help the Devil, and I steal this idea from this author named C.S. Lewis, this really famous Christian author in the mid-20th century, and he wrote this book called The Screwtape Letters uh, in the voice of a devil. It was a first-person book written in the voice of a devil, this senior devil named Wormwood, who is writing letters of advice to a junior devil named Screwtape. So the screw tape letters. And the brilliance of this book is that when you, when you read in the voice of a devil, you actually understand how the devil goes about tricking you. you know? So instead of talking about the devil, you try to get into a devilish mindset, and it teaches you in a particularly deep way how to avoid the schemes that the devil foists against us. That's the idea of the sermon series anyway. Plus, as I say, uh, I'd make a great devil. I'd make a so-so Christian but I think I'd make a truly great devil. And so this plays to my strengths, uh, is what I say. And we're starting to wrap up this sermon series now. It's been kind of fun. Uh, but we're, we're exploring how the devil does things so that we can better uh, resist the devil's schemes against us. And, and we've learned that Satan's number one trick is to get us to do destructive things that we think are virtuous things, right? So it's a deception. It's fooling us. Satan masquerades as an angel of light, Paul tells us in scripture. He doesn't come across as an evil guy. He comes across as a decent guy and kind of tricks you to do things, decent things that end up being destructive in some way. And that's his brilliance. Uh, Typically what he does is that he makes you focus on one virtue in a way that excludes other virtues. 
So you think you're being very virtuous by focusing on the one virtue, whereas in fact you're being negligent and narrow, right? The analogy we've used is, is to do with diet. Spinach is really, really healthy, but if you only eat spinach, you'll eventually get sick, right? Because you need other things as well. Uh, and so God wants us to be integrated. The word integrated means to use all things together, to tie things together, to tie all virtues together into a healthy, whole personhood. And Satan's strategy is to get you to disintegrate, to exclude virtues. You only have to exclude one or two before you get really sick. Um, and that's, that's his trick, uh, essentially. So today we're going to take a look at how might devils use the Bible to ruin people. And now I will put on my devil hat and I will speak to you as a devilish coach. And I'm going to coach you on how to use scripture to just wipe people out. <laughs> All right, so you have to, you have to be devious here. Uh, I think it's worth pointing out uh, to all junior devils that devils are great at using scripture. Uh, it's one of our most ancient tools, and every good devil needs to be really knowledgeable about scripture. Yeah? Can I get a mwahaha? That's right, okay. So every great devil needs to be really knowledgeable of scripture. In fact, it's hard to be a good devil unless you know quite a bit of scripture. If you don't know a lot of scripture, uh, then you just don't have the tools uh, to really deceive people well. It's like, if you're going to be a crooked lawyer, you need to know a lot of law, right? So if you're going to be a crooked spiritual entity, you got to know uh, a lot of scripture. Uh, and so we like it, uh, when people study scripture, we just want to twist it when it happens. It is good fodder uh, for us to do our work. Uh, you might notice that when Jesus himself was in the wilderness for 40 days, led by the Holy Spirit, right, Satan went out there and tempted him. How? He quoted scripture at him. Quoted scripture at him. Quoted scripture passages way out of context, you know. And they had some good scriptural debate out there. Uh, Satan said to Jesus, oh, it's written that, uh, you know, if the Son of Man, if the Messiah gets in danger, that God will send angels and lift him up, lest his foot strike a stone, you know. And Jesus replied, using scripture, uh, it is written, you should not test the Lord your God. You know, don't try to manipulate God with scripture, right? Don't try to control God uh, with scripture. And so on and so on uh, it, it went. Um, Jesus' main opponents in the gospel stories that we all know so well from Scripture were who? Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious experts of the day, uh, the Bible teachers of the day. These guys were experts in Scripture. All of them would have memorized the first five books of the Bible in their entirety. Right? And the Pharisees would have memorized uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, beyond that, actually. Uh, why would Jesus' main opponents be the scripture experts of his day? Doesn't that just blow your mind a little bit? Because if scripture is good, if it's corrective, if it's clarifying, uh, if it's growthful, then it would seem like the scripture experts of Jesus' day would have been his biggest fans. But it just goes to show you how much potential we have as devilish deceivers to use scripture. Can I get a big mwahaha? I don't really feel like you're in it this morning. 
Let's try it again, people. This is important. All right, now we're feeling it. Kind of engage here. Scripture is a great opportunity for us to go out there and to do a lot of damage. Um, precisely because it can do so much good uh, when, when used well. You know, Scripture can be used pridefully, can it not? Because once you become an expert, you can go about convincing people that you're an expert. It can be used fearfully, right? Because there are a lot of passages in there that are very consequential, that are a little bit frightening, that are violent, that are epic uh, in their scope. Uh, and there are a lot of details in it. And, you know, it's easy to make people feel like they're going to miss one of the details. Scripture can be used very controllingly, right? We talked about that just last week in our coaching session, that, you know, want to use power in a controlling sort of way. And that can be very destructive. God wants people to be powerful, but he does not, pe does not want people to be controlling and contemptuous others and people get really contemptuous towards others where scripture is concerned all of these things uh, work uh, for us on our side uh, there are a lot of pseudo-christian cults out there uh, that are built on a particular understanding of scripture and the way they use it to control people and there are a lot of culty people out there whether or not they're in a cult we can send culty people into churches just to freak out other well-meaning Christians, right? That's one of our favorite strategies, just to put culty, controlling, expert people into churches and sow a lot of fearfulness or pride or doubt or dissension and stuff like that. So it's very easy for us to do. Scripture is, if, if Satan masquerades as an angel of light, Scripture is one of the top masquerade costumes, Right? Wrap yourself in scripture and you can get away with anything. Let's say it together, people. Wrap yourself in scripture and you can get away with anything. I mean, just because you know it, just because you quote it, doesn't mean that you're up to good. Right? Just like if you wrap yourself in law, you can get away with anything. You know, I know a lot of court cases like that. Law is supposed to be used for good. It is a mechanism for discovering truth and rightness. But dang, if it isn't often used for destruction. And scripture can be uh, quite, quite similar. So scripture is a top masquerade costume. I think the other top masquerade costume is actually compassion, right? Say that you're doing something for kindness and compassion and in sympathy, and you can get away uh, for anything. And both of those things are really good. Compassion is really good. Scripture is really good. But they're great excuses for doing really bad, right? So... Get on top of that. Give me a... I don't think you're on your question. All right. So uh, let's read um, some, uh, some texts. Uh, we'll see um, some texts from the Bible, some Jesus interactions with Scripture experts uh, to see how Jesus defeated some of our scriptural agenda. It's important that we devils understand this. Let's start with a story from Matthew 22. It's one of the many stories where Jesus is in conflict with the, the Bible experts of, of his day. Uh, this is a, a passage where Jesus interacts with both the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the two big uh, religious political parties of, of his day. The Sadducees 
were kind of actually the dominant political actors of Jesus' day, and they did not believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They were like the humanist religious people of Jesus' day. And then there were the Pharisees, the big divide being that the Pharisees did believe in an afterlife, and um, they believed in some more. The Sadducees only read the first five books of the Bible, and the Pharisees read the whole Old Testament pretty much. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. And this is true. In the Old Testament, there's a law. If my brother dies without children, I take his wife into my tent. I try to give her kids that effectively become the inheritors of my brother's estate. So it's kind of a welfare plan through marriage and polygamy, uh, which itself was not like the plan that God originally hatched in Genesis, but people had become twisted. So this was uh, the second or third best plan. This was like plan D, uh, but it's actually in scripture. There's a lot of um, rules like this in scripture, and it was freaking people out. It was confusing their little minds. So they come to Jesus, and they say, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. Oh, that's an interesting will. Uh, the same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? And this was the Sadducees' proof that there was no resurrection. Right? It's funny, right? And some of you are laughing. Uh, but it's very, I mean, it's very, you could argue this in a courtroom, in a way. You know, it has that quality to it. It's a little bit clever. Uh, and so it's like, ha, got you, Jesus. Admit that there is no resurrection. Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God, which is just like a great in your face. I thought you knew scripture. Poof. Right? And you don't do anything powerful. Poof. Um, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, which is something else that the Sadducees had doubts about. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive somewhere in the universe. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Uh, I am the God of Abraham. So that, that I am, that verb, is sort of in a perpetual tense. So it was a way of, of proving grammatically that God is eternal and the people mentioned in the Bible, therefore, are eternal. Um, because God uses, the scripture uses the present tense with respect to relationship with them. I don't know if you follow all of that, but it was an equally clever and lawyerly response. And that's, that's the thing, like, when we get people to behave in a lawyerly fashion, uh, you know, they can be easily defeated with the same sort of nuance. Um, so... Uh, this makes us vulnerable. We have to think hard about this. But here's the beauty of this story. When Jesus makes a correction on one side, people on the other side of the divide can try to claim him as their own in this court battle that people wage over Scripture. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. They're like, oh, well, maybe Jesus is on our side. 
One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Fair and respectful question. But a disintegrating question, right? Because what we want to do is all of them. And the Pharisees are like, well, give us one that we can focus on, dot, 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 and use to think ourselves superior. You see the strategy? Because we want to spread that strategy, right? We want to get people to be really excited about the one thing that defines their relationship with God. That's the trick. Write that down. Take a note. Get people to really focus hard on just bits. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This was an unfortunately brilliant response. And devils do not like it. Because Jesus tells them what the greatest commandment is. But the commandment he tells them is the broadest one of all. The most encompassing one at all. Yeah, well, the great commandment is that God has everything about you and you should give everything about you to God. So it's an integrated response. And you should do the same with people, uh, by the way. So he wiggles out of it by using a, a, a brilliant scriptural response. If you were a Pharisee, you would say, oh, yes, but how do you love people best? And how do you love God best? And you would keep trying to shrink it down to something that you could manipulate. You see how that works? So there's a good example for devils and a good example for Christians as well. Make sure that, um, that you use the examples well. Matthew uh, 9, uh, there's another one. Um, one of the favorites of this sociopastor. Uh, what's going on here is that Jesus uh, has just converted a Levi, Matthew, the tax collector. And so uh, Matthew is throwing a party at his house. And he's hanging out with a bunch of sinners there, and it's offending uh, the religious people. Uh, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because the law, the Bible, criticizes those people. And so in hanging out with them, you're not being a scriptural person, Jesus. You're not being scriptural. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And then he quotes uh, a, a line from a prophetic book. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Go do a Bible study until you really understand it, Jesus says. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right, the, the point here is that, again, uh, the, the, the Bible experts were using a disintegrated view of Scripture. It's like, God doesn't like sin, therefore you should not hang out with sinners. And Jesus quotes another piece of Scripture that says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire that you spread mercy in the world, not propriety in the world, which is very challenging, actually, um, because presumably you want to do both. Go find out what mercy means, because the word mercy is all over Scripture as well. Um, Jesus uses an integrated scripture. 
experts use a disintegrated scripture. That's the rule. One last one uh, from John chapter 3. Now, this is a very famous uh, chapter in the Bible because everybody knows John 3.16. Let's quote it together. But let's read verses 10 through 15 and kind of the setup. And what's going on here is that Jesus is having a talk with this guy, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's, a, he's actually a, a prominent one of the day. Uh, and uh, he's an, a scriptural expert, but he's an expert in a way that is actually verging on wise. He's starting to get interested in Jesus. He's seen in Jesus some life. So he approaches Jesus to kind of get the rest of the story, to ask some honest questions. But we devils were really pressuring Nicodemus because he wanted to preserve his expert profile in society, so he went to Jesus at, at, offline at night hiding so that no one would see him have this conversation. That's essentially what's going on. Uh, so he's covering his akole a little bit. Uh, and uh, he's saying, well, what do I have to do to get saved? Tell me about this message that you have. What is this kingdom of, of, of God about? And Jesus says to him, well, uh, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. This is where we get the phrase born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand what it means to be born again. He says, what? You want to stuff the babies back in? That's what you're saying? It becomes this really great conversation, actually. And Jesus finally replies about this. You're Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? How could you not get it? Right? I know, I know it's a new phrase, but how could you not understand the concept? I thought you understood what the Bible was about. See, there's a difference between knowing what the Bible says and understanding what it's about. Do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We, Jesus and his disciples, speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. It's like, it's right in front of you. Uh, I, I have uh, spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is blowing his mind here because he's making himself, the Son of Man referred to Jesus, it was like a, a turn of phrase, and saying like, I've been to heaven. You know, I came from there. What? Jesus' nature was not understood very well at the time. He's saying, um, uh, you're looking so hard at scripture that you do not see the testimonies that are unfolding right in front of you. And that sometimes happens to Bible experts, right? The only thing in their life is Bible. <laughs> but the Bible, of course, is to lead us to a fuller life, right? So you see what's going on here in this debate. No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is referring to an episode in the book of Numbers where the Israelites were infested with the plague of snakes. And God says, put a snake on a pole and hold it in front of them. And whoever sees the snake will be healed of their snake bites. Very symbolic story. Just as Moses lifted up the snake on a pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up on a pole. Jesus is making kind of a prophetic foreshadowing here about his own crucifixion, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life, may be healed of their snake bite.
for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's where, and he goes in, into that. The interesting thing about this is that Jesus is using scripture in a way that's very live, that's very expansive. It's like, look, you're a Bible expert, but you don't see what's going on right in front of you as I do the miracles and bring people into faith and stuff like that. You're doing scripture only, but scripture is designed to be done with life, right? They work together. You have to be good at one to understand the other. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. And then he quotes some scripture. You know that story where, Jesus, where Moses held up a snake on a pole? There's a concept there. Right? It's not just the letter of that story. It's the wholeness and the concept around the story. And what is the concept around the story? The concept around the story is that God always makes a way to deliver the people. He could do it however he wants. He could stick a bronze snake on a pole and make it a miracle. Or, dot, 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 Nicodemus, he could be using me right now in a way that you'd never figure out unless you understood the God behind the scene. And so Jesus is saying, Scripture teaches you about the personality of God in a way that helps you understand the rest of Scripture. Nobody who saw that bronze snake as a pole would have imagined that it referred to a crucified Christ in the early years A.D. But if you know the story and the crucified Christ happened, you should have caught it. So scripture develops over time. It unfolds in real life right in front of your eyes. And if you're an expert, you can't do that. <laughs> but if you're a user, if you're a traveler, if you're an adventurer, then you use scripture in a different way. We want people to be experts, not adventurers. We want people to be lawyers. Apologies to the lawyers. Right? Not real-life practitioners. That plays to our hands. So say it again with me. We want people to be experts. Oh, I heard some hisses. Can I hear some hisses? All right. There you go. Uh, devils want humans to make bold claims of certainty about things they needn't be certain about. Like, when is Christ coming back? That's a good one. How many cults and churches have been spawned by people who just had figured it out, right? But then, of course, they didn't figure it out. It was not true. Uh, we want people to make claims about under what circumstances does God forgive sin, right? Because, of course, we're the judges, right? We, we people. That's what we want people to think, um, uh, how do you become a Christian? Yeah, yeah, we want, we want people to make bold scriptural claims about that because, of course, there's only one right way, um, whatever that is. Um, we want people to make bold certain scriptural statements about the elect, who gets in, who doesn't, why, about, you know, propriety in all manner of different things. You know, we want them to talk about what's right more than what's merciful and uh, what scripture says as opposed to what scripture suggests is a healthy way, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then when people's predictions about Christ's return crumble and when people's theology of forgiveness 
just creates a lot of destruction and dissension and despair when it turns out that all these bold scriptural claims really don't have life in them, when that happens, we then want to tempt people to throw scripture out entirely, to overreact. So we get them coming and going. That's what we want to do. Because when people misapply scripture, the next thing is that people dismiss scripture. We win both ways. We win both ways. Come on, let me hear it, guys. All right, and that's the end of your devilish coaching today. Consider yourselves coached up. Well done, well done. Turn to somebody and look evil and cackle. And just, that'll be done. All right, good. Oh, some of you better at that than others. Better at that than others. All right, let's step back to reality a little bit and I'll give uh, just a couple of thoughts on, you know, godly use and application of scripture, although you may have already drawn some conclusions yourself as we did this uh, pretending exercise. Um, over the years, because, you know, I've loved to walk with scripture so much, I've come up with just a couple analogies that help keep things straight in, in, in my head, which is an interesting place. Um, Here's, here's one analogy that helps me. With scripture, uh, I think of cupping water in your hands. When you cup water in your hands, you can drink deeply. Everybody drink deeply. Right? So you should have a huge container of scripture in your life so that you can drink deeply of it. But when you try to control it and hold it tightly, you spill all the water. Right? So I think scripture should be held like this so that you can really get a lot of it as opposed to like this so you have to struggle with it all the time. Understand? Everybody go like this. Everybody go like this. Very simple. Uh, very visceral, but that helps me a lot. Even today, you know, in my 50s, that still helps me. But when I was 14 years old, that helped me a lot. Um, I also think about relating to Scripture uh, a little bit like relating to a person. And you could make some, you know, large theological claims about that. Jesus, the living word, and such and such. Um, but when you love people really, really well, Right? For me to, to love Mike really well and really deeply, I just have to love him. But I don't get to own him. And as soon as I own him, I start loving him worse. Right? Love you, man. Um, and uh, whenever I try to own Mike and control him and become an expert with him, then he stops hanging out at my house. You know? our relationship goes down. Anyway, there's something about loving and owning. This is an inelegant way to describe it, I know. But like, I love scripture. I love it. And one of the reasons I love it is because I'm not an expert in it, right? I know it. I would, I, I, I would guess, I would guess this is not certain, but I, I would guess I know more of it than almost anybody here. And I use it broadly, I quote it broadly, you know, and I say that with some confidence because I'm older than most everyone here, and I've been doing it for longer. That's probably the only reason, um, you know, but, but I'm not, 
a lawyer with it, right? I'm not an expert, and I'm certainly not a judge with it. I don't make, get to make proclamations. I, I try not to be an expert about anything I don't need to be an expert on. I just try to be familiar with everything that it's good to be familiar with. And I find that, you know, that's really helped me. I love it, and it loves me, so to speak. But I don't own it. I don't try to manipulate it. And, uh, and I try to know uh, the God behind it, which is uh, the best thing. Because does reading scripture make you godly? Yes or no? It's a provocative question, right? right? Because if reading scripture made you godly, then the devils would be really, really godly. Because I guarantee you, Satan knows scripture better than you do. Right? But he doesn't relate to it properly. Right? So no, reading scripture is not going to make you godly, at least in that sense. But if you're godly, you're going to really understand scripture, and it's going to be super helpful. Right? And to be godly, of course, you know, scripture helps you get going, but so does your relationship with God and your real-life interaction with him and your real-life interaction with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, uh, whose ministry, in large part, is to get you to remember the teachings that Jesus gave. Right? So it's supposed to be relational. Um, so the, the, the more you try to live a godly life, the more scripture you'll understand and, and, and the more alive and helpful it will be to you. I think the best interpretations of scripture when you hear them always sound simple, not tortured. They always sound simple, not complicated. And you can use that uh, to gauge uh, your understanding of a particular story or something, or a particular law or set of rules. Does this seem really, really complicated? then I probably don't really get it yet. That's a fairly decent metric for whether you get it. When you hear a really good like Bible teacher or something like that, they tend to take something that's complex and they give it to you in a way that actually makes it seem simple. Because I don't really think the Bible is a book written for PhDs. In fact, Jesus makes a ton of statements to the contrary. Right? It's like, the, the unwise shall be wise, the weak shall be strong, the unsophisticated shall be uh, the authoritative folks, etc., etc. So it should seem fairly simple and not tortured, if you know what I mean. That's a bit of an impressionistic way to say it, but I hope it's helpful. And then finally, um, because we want to approach Scripture in an integrated way as opposed to a piecemeal, disintegrated way, I think it's really useful for those of you who want to grow in your knowledge of Scripture to want to grow in your broad knowledge of Scripture. Try to get an overview of the whole thing. And one of the things we're doing right now at the church is this Bible overview that started last week, actually, so it's probably too late to join uh, this run-through. But from time to time, we do these Bible courses where you try to understand the Bible in its whole arc, or one or two books in their whole arc, instead of just trying to understand a verse, trying to understand the sweep of things, and then that provides you a context for understanding verses. Um, so I like to take scripture in big chunks. You know, It's not just that I can quote a verse from Philippians 3. I kind of like to understand why Philippians 3 was written and what it did and kind of you know, take a step back. Um, and that really helps me drill down on any individual verse. And then finally, last tip, just super practical, uh, for those of you who feel like, well, I mean, that sort of broad scriptural knowledge sounds great, but you know, I'm not, 
so good with reading huge chunks of material, you know, and I can only listen to so many audiobooks. Like, I'm not really sure how to get all that in my head. Well, okay. Um, you got brothers and sisters around you that can help, so that's, that's a good thing. There are a lot of people around here that have a lot of scriptural knowledge. But if you want to just kind of get a grip on scripture, um, here's my best advice. And this is just advice, right? This is just tips from me to you guys. Here's what I would do. I would read Genesis and Exodus, Mark and Acts. Those are four books out of 66 in the Bible. I would read Genesis and Exodus, the Gospel of Mark, and the Book of Acts. The Gospel of Mark is short. It's only 16 chapters. And almost all of those books are filled with stories as opposed to essays, right? And it's easy to remember stories, and the stories in those books are so fundamental. Genesis, what do you know about Genesis? Exodus is sort of a story about how people, how God began to build a people. And so a lot of fundamentals and frameworks for that. It's a story of, you know, the deliverance from Egypt for the Jews and how they got the Ten Commandments and what it all meant. But it, they're just great epic stories. Genesis, Exodus. The Gospel of Mark was the first gospel written, and it's the gospel on which two other gospels are built. And it's got all the Jesus stories in it, right, which help to clarify the Old Testament ones and really give you the person of Jesus. And then the book of Acts that's kind of our story, right? That's how the church got started, and it's filled with great stories, and you see them wrestling with some of the issues that we wrestle with today, and figuring stuff out on the fly, trying to figure out how to do scripture in a context that was really confusing, and what they decided was essential and not, and it's just a glorious book that way. Now, of course, the rest of the Bible is awesome, but if you guys became fairly familiar with those four books, assuming you're not now, I tell you what, you would be rooted and grounded in the Bible in a way that would change your life. By which I mean, it would be there for you when you needed it in life. You would have stuff to draw on and stuff to share with others. And that's when it gets really, really good. That's all I got to say on, on the Bible, um, which is the best book ever. You should all sleep with it under your pillow and used to such nefarious, devilish ends by so many people through history. It just freaks me out, because it shouldn't be that way, right? So let's have a humble, non-expert, uh, big picture, integrated uh, use of it. Um, and not let us beat us, not use it to beat anyone up, and not let anyone uh, use it to beat us up but only to build us up and to come to uh, be anchored in a confusing world uh, better and better. Father God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might behold you in a real and living way, that we might hear your voice daily in a real and living way. And I pray that our understanding of the scriptures, though they are old, would help in that current day conversation, just as our current day conversation with you should help us understand the scriptures that are very old. I pray that you would give us a passion for the scriptures that is entirely integrated with our love for God and people. 
And I pray, Lord, that through this humble fellowship, perhaps the world around us would begin to see the Bible in a different way, as a book worthy of respect, as a story that is the most epic and provocative of all time. I pray that you'd make us biblical people in the sense that we would do the Bible here, that the stories that we read in it would be replicated in our midst. In Jesus' name, everybody says...